Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Well, my name is Duncan Green. Uh, I'm a professor in practice at the LSE in the Department for International Development, and I'm chairing tonight's, tonight's discussion, which means talking as little as possible. So the topic today is making anti-corruption effective, a new approach. And we have a real global heavyweight, I think, uh, in terms of his influence. Uh, he's very slim, but in terms of his influence, um, we have, uh, as our main speaker, Mushtaq Khan, now, Mushtaq Khan is a, a incredibly well-known in this sphere. He's, been, um, he's really carved a niche in this whole question of governance and anti-corruption. He's a professor of economics at SOAS at the University of London and chief executive of the uh, SOAS Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium funded by the British government. He's been at SOAS for 25 years, but before that, he taught at Cambridge University. He's an institutional economist and he's working on the... The, the nitty gritty, the challenges of how you actually implement policies in a range of countries on things like anti-corruption and industrial policy. Um, he's perhaps best known, at least in, uh, in terms of what I've come across, uh, in terms of his political settlements framework. And he's applied that to this analysis of how you implement policies. And he's done this in a number of countries, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Nepal, Thailand, Vietnam, the list goes on and on. Um, and as well as being an uh, incredibly prolific academic and uh, academic author, he's actually an influential voice in many institutions. He's spoken widely on, on anti-corruption governance reforms. Uh, he's do, given keynote speeches at the African Development Bank's African Economic Conference and the Commonwealth Ministerial Forum on Public Administration. So in many parts of the world, Mushtaq is the kind of go-to person on anti-corruption and institutional reform. So we're incredibly lucky to have him speaking to us tonight, as we are with our discussant. Our discussant is Dr. Uche Igwe, who is um, currently a visiting fellow at LSE's shiny new Institute for Africa, the Firoz Lalji Institute for Africa. And he's at the International Center for Policing and Security at the University of South Wales. And just to make this even more global, Mushtaq is dialing in from Dhaka in Bangladesh, and Uche is dialing in from Abuja in Nigeria. So fingers crossed that uh, the uh, technology works and that we get through the session uh, smoothly. I should say that Uche is also a member of the executive consultation group of Blue Dots Network, which is a global multi-stakeholder initiative for sustainable infrastructure, finance and governance. So that's enough from me and uh, enough introductions, I think. I could have gone on, but I'll control myself. Uh, Mushtaq, would you like to take the floor and speak for as long as you feel necessary? but less than an hour on your topic, anti-corruption. Thank you. Um, 
I'll begin by saying what we won't be discussing today. I won't be discussing different types of corruption, their causes and effects, though I could talk quite a bit about that. I'm going to focus on the topic, which is feasible anti-corruption. How can we actually implement anti-corruption in ways that can help development? So this is the policy implementation question that Duncan was talking about. And I'm going to start by talking a little bit about why transparency and accountability-based anti-corruption strategies have fared poorly in developing countries. And then I'm going to go on to the main theme, which is what we've identified in our research as the importance of horizontal monitoring. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that is and why that is so important in getting the internal support for enforcement, without which all of the vertical enforcement, which is transparency accountability, doesn't work too well. And I'm going to then move on and give you five case studies from our research in the SOAS Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium. Um, and each of these case studies, and we have 30 in, in, uh, in, in, in SOAS ACE, and each of these case studies takes two to three to four years to complete. So there are very long working papers on them. And I'm gonna summarize them very, very quickly because I actually want you to get a feel of the very diverse kind of applications of this approach, which you wouldn't get if I just talked about one case in a great deal of detail, which also means that I can't go into it in great depth, but I think understanding that, uh, that the different applications is also quite important. And then finally, I'll end with some uh, brief comments about what this means for policy and for research. Okay, so to begin with, um, the uh, anti-corruption strategies based on transparency and accountability have been really very disappointing. And that's the mainstream approach of anti-corruption. Transparency means that we focus on how to make the detection of rule violations easier. And I, I'm assuming that everyone knows what corruption means. Corruption is when powerful individuals, usually public officials, bureaucrats or politicians, misuse their power to violate rules in their own interest. So that's the, that's the definition of corruption. And the idea is that transparency is all about making those violations detectable. So that means supporting, for example, the media, supporting um, digital technologies or supporting whistleblowers to get information about what violations are happening. And the second pillar is accountability, which means once that's transparent, you have formal processes for correcting it. So you have formal processes for punishing those who have broken the rules. That could include elections to, to uh, throw out corrupt politicians, anti-corruption commissions to um, do the investigation and build the cases, uh, courts and, and um, police and so on to punish people and lock them up, etc. None of this has worked too well. And I'm not gonna go in and, and give you summaries of this evaluation, because a lot of it is, if you've been reading the newspapers, very clear. Anti-corruption commissions in developing countries are often themselves engaged in rule violations. And often they focus only on the opposition. So they become an instrument of control rather than of en enforcing a rule of law. Elections often elect corrupt politicians who are known to be corrupt. Anti-corruption prosecutions often fail. Um, corrupt bureaucrats and politicians appear to have impunity. And media reports on corruption, particularly in the social media, are a dime a dozen and very rarely lead to any effective action. 
digital technologies have reduced some types of corruption. And we have some really interesting research within um, ACE on digital technologies. My colleague, Pallavi Roy, um, gave a talk on this series a couple of years ago on our work on digital technologies. Some of this works, but sometimes digital technologies actually make things worse for um, the less powerful in society, and they allow many types of corruption to continue. So that's the, the kind of background to where we um, uh, begin our research. And the problem is that these approaches of transparency accountability make one very big assumption. They assume that once the violators have been exposed uh, and their responsibility is clear, they will be punished. In other words, they assume that the enforcement part of it is really unproblematic. And that's usually based on a variety of principal agent models where the cheating is happening by agents, even if they're powerful ones. But as soon as the principals find out what the agents are doing, they're stopped because the principals have the capacity to stop them. So the principals could be citizens who vote for politicians, the politicians are the agents, and the agents are maybe cheating. As soon as the citizens find out, they get rid of the politicians. Or the principals might be politicians who are dealing with the bureaucrats and the bureaucrats are cheating. As soon as the bureaucrats are detected, the politicians will get rid of them. That whole model, that whole way of thinking about anti-corruption ignores the problem of enforcement. And this is a really seri serious problem in developing countries because rules are only enforced if powerful organizations, in this case the principals, actually want the enforcement to happen. As a result, what is enforced in developing countries and in any country actually depends on the configuration of power, interests, and capabilities across society. And that configuration is what I call the political settlement that Duncan referred to earlier. And those configurations of power, interests, and capabilities are quite different across countries, not only across developing countries, but very different between developing countries and more advanced countries. And that's why anti-corruption strategies that work in some countries fail in others, and even more importantly, why anti-corruption, in our view, usually develops from sectors and pockets in society and works upwards, rather than a big bang, which changes the whole of society at the same time. Now, there are very powerful voices in the anti-corruption field who argue that the big bang is the only way to go. And we disagree with that really fundamentally. I mean, I, I would argue that there's very little evidence of big bangs having any sustainable effect. There are people who provide that evidence. I think that evidence is flawed. I don't have time to go into that. But we think that big bangs are not only not likely to work, they're really dangerous because they try to change that entire configuration of power interests and capabilities. And that is totally impossible. And the usual, often the effect is that you end up in a worse place than you started off from. And just think of some of the things that have been happening in the Middle East, for example. Now, let me go a little bit deeper into this enforcement problem. The assumption that detection leads to enforcement is based on an implicit assumption that the society is already close to or has a rule of law. And this is really um, an important part of our analysis of what is a rule of law and why most countries that we are dealing with, the Bangladeshis, Nigerias, Tanzanias, and so on, actually are not at all close to a rule of law. A rule of law 
emerges when most individuals and organizations in a society are already following rules and even powerful organizations who violate rules are sanctioned when they're detected. If those two conditions hold, you are close to a rule of law. But most developing countries are nowhere close to that. And some advanced countries are actually um, declining from that position. And some of them are in real danger of not being in that position. In our analysis, those two conditions, which define a rule of law, emerges, when it emerges, you find that the violators are typically a small number of free riders. Most people are following rules. There are a few free riders. And as soon as the free riders are detected, enforcement happens. That typically happens when there are many powerful organizations in society, and they have very diverse interests. But all of them require complex contracting, which means rules need to be enforced for them to sustain their income and their power. When that happens, and this is typically what happens in advanced countries, you have different kinds of sectors and firms and trade unions and political parties and media companies and universities, and all of them are complex productive organizations and they all have diverse interests, but they need complex contracts to organize their activities. When that happens, the powerful want rule enforcement in their own interest. Even if each of them wants to free ride, they want rules to be enforced as soon as someone else breaks the rules. And therefore, they engage in horizontal peer monitoring. And this is the critical part of our story, which is often missing. Much of the enforcement that happens in societies is because of this horizontal peer monitoring. I can see my neighbor isn't paying tax, and I will then report that and make sure that the enforcement agencies, the fraud squad tax authorities, make sure that my my neighbor is paying tax, otherwise my neighbor will undercut my business and destroy me. So I have a very strong interest in supporting enforcement and monitoring my, my peers. And this is a critical part of the enforcement story, which is often ignored. This is a really different um, game in, in developing countries. In developing countries, much of the economic and political activity that is going on is informal. Many organizations violate rules because they can't comply with the rules. Up to 80% of the economy is in the informal sector, which means that those organizations don't even have the capability to pay for registering their business, let alone anything else. 80% of activity is unregistered. And those, most of those unregistered activities don't comply with health and safety regulations, tax regulations, building regulations, and so on. Politics also has a range of client list aspects, which I don't have time to go into now. But politics is also largely informal in developing countries. Although it varies, the informality is constant across them. So not only are there lots of people who are violating rules because they can't comply. In addition, the powerful also violate rules because many of the powerful organizations in developing countries and emerging countries have no need to be rule following because they're not engaged in complex transactions that require enforcement of complex contracts. They're usually dealing with the same bunch of people again and again, and they can enforce their contracts informally with all kinds of informal mechanisms like mafias and so on, so that they don't really need to have a reputation for being rule following to do their business. So when you have a society when the powerful 
do not require general rule enforcement and are not monitoring their peers and are not putting pressure on the enforcement agencies, you do not have a rule of law. And this is really fundamental. And as soon as you understand that, you understand why transparency and accountability are totally insufficient as a way of fighting corruption in these societies. At best, these societies have what I call in some of my work, rule by law, which is different from rule of law, because a rule by law means that rules are enforced, but they're often enforced selectively. The powerful and sometimes the not so powerful often escape sanctions because actually there is no pressure on anyone to enforce the rules. But rules are enforced when there is an incentive um, of some group to enforce rules on the others and they have the power and the capability to enforce them. People who work with principal agent models often describe this conundrum by saying the problem is that the principles are unprincipled in developing countries. And this is obviously a play on the, on the word principle, but, but what they are evading is they want, to, they want to explain this problem as a failure of morality or principles of the principle. Whereas we want to, I would want to explain that in terms of the distribution of power and not in terms of culture, norms, and, and, and things like that. So this is, again, another really important part of analysis when you have the principles not enforcing the law on agents that they can see are violating, we don't think this is a problem of political will in general. And it's not a question of culture or social norms being unprincipled or people are tolerant of corruption and therefore corruption happens. In fact, the, the problem is that when you have widespread violations, culture, politics adapts to that. So it looks like people have um, a, a culture or, or social, social norms that are tolerant of corruption, but that's because there's so much corruption going around that people adapt to it. It's not that because they're tolerant of it, there is corruption. It's because there is so much corruption that to live in those societies, you have to adapt to it and tolerate it. So I think the direction of causality here is very important to understand. I don't think it's a problem of, in general, culture or social norms, although the, when you hit an equilibrium, it looks like everything is causing everything. Okay, so let's see the difference in a, in a graphical way, and then I'll move on to what our approach is. So when you have societies which have a rule of law, and the bit that people don't get often is that the critical part of a rule of law is that the society consisting of organizations, which are companies, trade unions, political parties, all of that sort of um, stuff, the organizations themselves are heavily engaged in monitoring each other. The organizations don't want other organizations to violate the rules. So for example, when President Trump tries to violate rules, it, long before the enforcement agencies come in, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and, and big corporations in America go and start criticizing him and monitoring what he's doing out of their own self-interest because they don't want a rules-based society to be upset by someone trying to break the rules. And so this horizontal monitoring is a critical part of rule of law societies. Those organizations are also monitoring the enforcement agencies, the bureaucrats and the politicians, and the politicians are also monitoring the enforcement agencies and vice versa and the bureaucrats, etc. And all of them are monitoring citizens to make sure that they don't violate rules. In other words, 
when you have a rule of law, you have a complex set of checks and balances going on. It's not a linear principal agent model. It's a mutually reinforcing organic set of relationships. And that is extremely difficult to replicate with some linear approaches to um, uh, in, in a principal agent sense. This is very different in developing countries where those organizations at the bottom of society don't have the power, interests, or capabilities to, to, to do monitoring on that scale across society. So here, when you see corruption, you might think that, okay, there's a bureaucrat who is corrupt. The bureaucrat is an agent of a politician, and you apply your principal agent model and say, the politician can't observe what the bureaucrat is doing. So the answer might be to force some transparency here and change the incentives of bureaucrats, then the principal, the politician, will be able to contain that corruption. But you haven't asked, why should the politician be doing that? Maybe the politician is colluding with the bureaucrat, and who is going to use this information to enforce what on whom? You haven't answered that question. So when you see the politician is also corrupt, you say, okay, let's put in another principal agent um, uh, line of logic here. And you say that people are electing, organizations are electing politicians and they are monitoring bureaucrats. And maybe the politicians need to be monitored. So maybe we need to have better democracy, more transparency here. But then you don't ask, what is making those organizations select clean politicians? Maybe the organizations in your society, the political parties, the big companies, want corrupt politicians. And so again, the principle might be colluding with the agent to create the corruption. So, and then you might say, well, actually the problem may be that we could solve it by empowering the enforcement agencies. Let's create a very strong anti-corruption commission. Let's create and give them lots of digital technologies. Let's create strong police forces. And then you haven't asked, well, who is monitoring the enforcement agencies? And how do you stop them from using these powers to extract rents from society and maybe engage in their own corruption or being used as a kind of mechanism against the opposition? Then maybe perhaps the problem is culture and the adverse social norms. So we have to tell society that actually the tolerance of this corruption is really bad. They shouldn't tolerate this corruption and they need to do something about it. Lots of programs try to spend money doing this. But they haven't asked, you know, telling citizens that they shouldn't tolerate corruption, does it give them the power to enforce anti-corruption? It doesn't. And so one of, we have some very interesting paper on social norms and messaging in, in Nigeria, where we found in a, an experiment that actually telling people who have no power to do anything, that there's a lot of corruption and they shouldn't tolerate it, depresses people even further and makes them more likely to engage in corruption because now it's reinforced that there's a lot of corruption and it's very damaging and they can't do anything about it. So it can sometimes have an adverse effect by depressing people who have already know that there's corruption and they can't do anything about it. So what is missing in all this obviously is that powerful cross-checking happening at the bottom of society. That's not happening. And here is the real rub. We can't create that through policy because creating those organizations with the power and capabilities is nothing other than the process of development itself. So that's not a policy fix. However, here is where our approach comes in. If you stop thinking about the whole of society and start thinking about sectors and activities, then suddenly you might find 
there are sectoral opportunities where this horizontal monitoring is already working and you might enhance that with some feasible policies which then gets pockets of um, anti-corruption going which is developmental and that's the beginning of our approach so here is what we do so when the rule of law is weak and only some rules are enforced that could be exclusionary but it could also mean that the rules that are enforced are developmental so it's not that it's always developmental so you have to look for areas where the rule enforcement is developmental and then we ask can you use feasible policies to enhance and support this horizontal enforcement that is already there and we identified two complementary strategies one of them and with apologies to hirschman um, we call one of these voice strategies. Voice strategies are strategies which work in sectors where we already find some self-interested horizontal monitoring working. And then we ask, can we enhance that, that process with some feasible policies and that achieves developmental outcomes? And interestingly, there are many such opportunities that we have found. But there are also many areas where that self-interested horizontal monitoring may not work because most significant actors within that sector are benefiting from corruption and too many of them are benefiting from corruption and we call these areas networked corruption and here we uh, suggest that we have to have exit strategies which doesn't mean exiting and closing your eyes to the problem but the exit strategy means you don't try and fix an unfixable problem you try and set up an alternative way of delivering the same development outcome, realizing that the network corruption is too hard to crack right now. You have to come back to it later, but you have to support the outcome that, that, that is being blocked by that network corruption in a different way. And we argue that both these strategies are important, and not only are they important, it's very important to understand the difference between them, because if you don't, and you try to always have the same approach to corruption, you'll be banging your head against the wall most of the time. And we need a combination of both. And our theory of change is that both of them help you to develop productive organizations. And as you do that, it actually moves society towards that general formal rule of law um, state that we all want to move towards. So the first step of identifying voice strategies is we do a lot of research into the critically important sectors in the countries that we look at. And we get really excited when we find something like this. So this is within the same sector, in the same country, with the same vertical transparency accountability um, arrangements. We find some organizations like A, which have low corruption and are developmental, and some organizations like B, the orange ones, which are high corruption and not developmental. And so we ask, why is it in the same activity, some organizations which are otherwise similar, so we make sure that we are comparing like with like, that these otherwise similar organizations have different levels of corruption. And inevitably we find, because we've controlled for everything else, the organizations are similar in every respect, including having the same vertical enforcement, the only difference between them are the horizontal links that they have. And the low corruption organizations are linked with monitoring organizations, which are the large M's, the blue ones, 
And those are effective monitors, which actually make them low corruption. Whereas the orange high corruption organizations are linked to ineffective, the yellow circle monitors who allow that corruption to go on or in fact even collude with that corruption. Now that horizontal link is, we call it monitoring, but it could be who you are buying from or who you are selling to or who is monitoring you or who you are competing with. And so there's a whole variety of horizontal links that we look at. And, and as soon as I start giving the examples, you will see what I mean. But so that's the first step. And this is really exciting when you find that these differences exist and they do. And the reason they do is, is, is why actually developing countries work at all. If everybody was corrupt and if everybody was stealing, these countries would have collapsed long ago. The second step is even more important. So once we've identified these differences, we then ask, is there a feasible policy? Is there a feasible strategy of converting these yellow M's into blue M's? Is there some way that we can incentivize or technically upgrade or do something to the yellow monitors who are ineffective to make them effective monitors? And this is a feasibility question, which is also evidence-based. So we look at the evidence of what makes the, the, the monitoring effective. And if that is also the case, that there is a feasible way of making the monitoring effective, then we say, there is a feasible anti-corruption strategy here. Because our expectation then is, in the next step, you will have those orange bees, the high corruption organizations, will themselves become like the low corruption organizations. And we have a high level of confidence in saying that because there already are low corruption organizations. But the real test of, of this would be to actually take this in the field and do the, the policy implementation. And that's where if anyone's listening with some money in their pocket, that's what we want to do. So the next step of our research is to actually take us from here, which is all of the evidence-based analysis to here, which is the actual field test and seeing if that policy reduces corruption in the way that we think it will. And we have a high level of confidence it will. So here are some examples of this. And I'm gonna give you some examples of voice-based um, uh, anti-corruption. Let me begin with one which is very topical now because COP26 is beginning. And this is about um, climate adaptation investments, which are extremely critical for countries like Bangladesh, which are low lying, but actually for all developing countries. So these are things like cyclone shelters and embankments, which will save lives in the future. However, we, we find that there's massive corruption in the construction of these projects. Massive meaning a third of the money might be stolen. 80% of these projects are badly constructed. And one reason why this happens is that the benefits of these um, investments are in the distant future. Distant future means five, six, seven years down. People have very short time horizons and poorer people have even shorter time horizons. So something which is of benefit in the future isn't going to generate a lot of activity in terms of monitoring. Now we selected a number of projects which are constructed by the same agencies in comparable areas. And we found that there are some cyclone shelters which have very low corruption and are well-built and others have higher corruption. There are embankments with very low corruption and are better built and others have higher corruption and badly built. And they're built by the same agency with the same 
vertical um, monitoring and enforcement structures, the same reporting structures, and the same incentives for accountability and transparency. So why this difference? We spent a lot of resources in doing large-scale surveys of the surrounding areas to find out actually what kind of monitoring was going on. And we found something which is not at all surprising once it's explained. We found that corruption was much lower in the projects where influential individuals were involved in monitoring. And influential, we define as individuals with above average incomes. Now, if you remember that rural Bangladesh is really poor and the average income is very low, someone with an above average income is not powerful in the sense of someone in the capital and certainly in an international sense. But in that local, rural, distant, vulnerable community, it's that slightly higher than average income individual who is of the same status and power as other individuals who are doing the contracting. So the contractors are the organizations that are being monitored. And the influential individuals are those who are monitoring them. So those are the, 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 the blue circles are the influential individuals. And when influential individuals get interested, they can sit in the tea shop and ask questions about the quality of the cement and the quality of the steel. And that has a much bigger effect on the behavior of the contractors who come from the same horizontal um, peer group, because those people, those monitors can make serious trouble for them through the same informal political and other networks. And that is a much more credible threat than the vertical enforcement from these formal, you know, um, town hall type meetings, which nobody takes very seriously in developing country contexts. So then the second question is, how do you get more influential individuals involved? How do you make those orange, not so effective monitoring into the blue, um, very effective monitoring? Sorry, the, the yellow, not very effective into the blue, very effective. And the answer we found is again, very interesting. It's actually very feasible in terms of policy to get these influential individuals interested. And that's through the, what we call promoting the dual use benefits of these projects. Now it is already policy in countries like Bangladesh that climate adaptation investments should have a dual use. So embankments are used as roads, cyclone shelters are used as community centers, schools, and so on. However, randomly, most of the, 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 the usage of this is not very useful because people haven't thought about how to connect up the embankment with other feeder roads and so on to make those roads of immediate value to people who have things to carry to market or people who want to use the cyclone shelter for some community center or some business use or some uh, as, as a school. And as soon as those infrastructures have value immediately to people in the community who can do the monitoring, they get involved in monitoring. It's actually blatantly simple. As soon as you see it, and the surveys reveal this very, very clearly. So actually there is a very feasible anti-corruption strategy here, and it can be significantly reduced given the existing vertical enforcement structures simply by enhancing the horizontal um, monitoring that is going on by enhancing the dual use features of some of these projects, which are already there, is just that they need to be designed better. So this is an example of how this kind of um, horizontal enforcement has a very, very immediate effect on the observed corruption in these projects.
The second example is just as important. It's about skills training in developing countries. And we're really excited about this study because it's unpacked a problem which is of tremendous significance to manufacturing growth and employment growth in, in developing countries. Developing countries invest billions of dollars in skills collectively, and study after study shows that these programs have almost no effect. The treatment effect of a skills training program is between zero and 10% on average, which means that they, you might as well not have done it. Why is it that you have countries with such massive um, skills shortages where the skills training program has such little effect? The obvious answer that people have given is that the skills training providers don't put much emphasis on the kind of skills they provide. So it, they think of it as a principal agent problem. And the answer in Bangladesh, as in many other developing countries, has been to link the final one third of the payment to the training provider to the employment of the trainee. So they only get paid once their trainee gets a job. You would have thought this solves the problem. In fact, it creates a more severe problem, which is that there is massive fraud in the reporting of employment. And we were shocked to find that this is widely known and the implementing agencies, which are then releasing the money to the training providers, know this, know that there is massive fraud, but they collude in not doing anything about it because they don't know what to do about it. And if they report this level of fraud, their funding stops and the whole thing will collapse. So there is this kind of incredible collusion going on between the training providers, the implementing agencies, and everybody else in reporting employment when that employment isn't happening. So again, we researched 12 training providers in Bangladesh. And we selected them for being exactly identical in every respect. They were selected by the same implementing agency. So they had the same qualifications of trainers. They were training the same people in the same industry at the same level and with the same vertical monitoring because the same implementing agency was doing the vertical monitoring, which is basically checking up whether people have employment and then canceling contracts and so on. And as I was saying, the typical story is that that doesn't happen too well because there's too much um, fraud going on. And what we found is that there is a massive difference in the levels of fraud in the, in the same sector, it's the same vertical enforcement. You find that some of these people were doing 60% fraud and some of them were doing 0% fraud. That's massive. And what we found, and then we had, a, this was a really big program we tracked a thousand trainees over 346 factories. And we found a result that we were kind of expecting, but we were really happy when we found it. And what we found is that the degree of fraud is very strongly correlated with the firms you supply your trainees to. So those training providers who were near firms that had high organizational capabilities did almost no fraud. Whereas those training providers who were supplying to clusters of firms with low capabilities were doing an high amounts of fraud. Why is this? And the answer is slightly complicated. It, the, the answer is that a low organizational capability firm has a production line that moves very slowly. If your production line is moving very slowly and you send them a skilled worker, that skilled worker doesn't make the production line move very fast. 
So for the, from the firm's perspective, they think this is not a well-trained worker. They prefer to hire someone from the factory gate who is unskilled because that worker is fine for their slow moving production line. But the training provider who is sending workers to this firm or these clusters of firms can't get their trainees employed. So they engage in fraud to release their money. Whereas those training providers who are supplying the firms whose production lines are moving fast, not only do they not want unskilled workers because they slow down the production line, they will immediately soak up all these trainees because they need their production line to keep moving fast. And those training providers then don't do any fraud. So this was a really interesting finding. But then the question is, is it feasible to change the capabilities of the firms on the demand side? And the answer we found is yes, because lots of firms in Bangladesh are already doing that. It's a commercially viable proposition to borrow money, to raise the capability of the firms, to restructure the production lines and so on, so that the production line moves faster. And as soon as you do that, fraud declines, fraud on the, on the skills training side. So here we have a very interesting anti-corruption strategy, which is to combine skills training programs with invest, investing in firm organizational capabilities. And we have an example in Bangladesh of a firm that did exactly that. And not only did they reduce corruption, they achieved a 30% jump in productivity, which is massive in the garments industry. We are very proud of this study because it has applications beyond Bangladesh and it actually uncovers a wicked problem in skills training. Why does skills training not have an effect? And the answer is, because the firms that are employing them have low capabilities. So if you can keep on investing in skills training, but if the demand side is weak, then these skilled workers basically get on boats and try to leave the country because no one's going to employ them. And that is what is actually happening in a lot of developing countries. Next example is just as important. This is about the power sector in developing countries. And those of you who are following Lebanon now will know what a mess the power system is in there. And we have three studies on the power sector. This one is on Bangladesh. We have one on Nigeria, one in, on Lebanon, and they're all different. So I'm giving you the story of Bangladesh. Um, there's no general story in the power sector. But what you find in Bangladesh is that the government pays out between one to one and a half billion dollars a year in subsidies to overpriced private sector power plants. And again, when we look at the sector in detail, we find something really interesting. The same companies or very similar companies using identical technologies and using identical fuel produce power at very different prices. And so the higher prices are basically collusion where they collude with the contract giver, namely the government, to have massive markups, which are then kicked back to um, the, 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 uh, the government of officials. And in other contracts, that doesn't happen. And the difference in price between the collusive contracts and the non-collusive contracts is as much as 25% adjusting for everything else. Now, this was a massive finding of within sector differences and sometimes the same company producing power at different prices. And once again, we find something really interesting to do with horizontal monitoring. 
the contracts and tenders in which prices were low had politically unconnected bidders coming into bid. And that is what makes the procurement process work. Because if the only people bidding in your project, in your tender, are politically connected parties, then no amounts of transparency, procurement rules, and so on is going to work because nobody is going to reveal the fact that collusion is going on. So the World Bank, which spent thousands and thousands of, of or more dollars on procurement reforms in Bangladesh, has achieved very little because in many of these tenders, the only people bidding are politically connected companies. So how do you get politically unconnected companies interested in bids? And this is where I think our study found something really interesting. Investing in power plants is a very risky business in developing countries because you have a lot of upfront investment and you get paid over long periods of time in a context where contract enforcement is weak. So for most people, this is a very, very risky enterprise and most investors stay away. So in most cases, the tenders bring in only politically connected companies who collude, who will not monitor it. They might compete vigorously with each other, but they will never report corruption of each other, right? Because they're all politically connected and they're all corrupt. The only tenders in which this breaks down are the ones where happen to have by accident a form of financing, which we describe as untied subsidized financing. So this comes from places like the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, Islamic Development Bank, and others who are operating in Bangladesh. And they sometimes give infrastructure loans at lower than market interest rates, provided you meet technical and commercial specifications of a project. As soon as that is available, because, of it, because it's a low cost financing, it reduces the risk for politically unconnected investors and just the fact that it is doing that and the potential possibility that a politically unconnected player will come in collapses the collusion. And in those tenders, even if a connected company wins, they are on average bidding 25% lower. This was a fascinating finding. And we were thrilled when we found this because the implications of this in terms of how to design financing to break up collusion has huge implications particularly as we go into green technologies and so on, which will require a lot of private investment upfront in contexts which are highly risky and where political risk is very high. And if we are not careful, we will again have collusive, politically connected companies capturing all the business and overpricing things. Okay, let's now move on to the other variant of um, anti-corruption that we have, which are exit strategies. Exit strategies are where there's no evidence of that internal horizontal monitoring, whether it is by monitors, as in the embankment case, or whether in terms of the buyers, as we saw in the skills case, or in the case of power, where it was bidders competing against each other and monitoring each other. So the monitoring might be done by different types of agents, but it's peer-to-peer, -peer. that is the people who are monitoring have the same power as the people they are, that, that are getting monitored, and that's when that monitoring is effective. But in many areas, that's not the case. Now, a very good example of this is a fantastic study we have on artisanal um, refining in the Niger Delta in Nigeria. 
this is an area where um, estimates show between five and 20% of Nigeria's oil production goes missing. And a lot of this oil is then refined, if that is the word, using extremely crude technologies of cooking the, the oil and making diesel of different types at huge health and environmental cost. But, and here is a very big but, almost everyone in the local community benefits from this. There's a massive sub-economy in this area with huge benefits that the chart on the, on the right-hand side, I mean, you probably can't read it all, but I can tell you what it's showing, is showing the incomes of people in Nigeria in different activities from the civil service, Navy, army, paramilitary, police, teachers, etc. And the last row is workers in artisanal oil refining whose incomes are higher than almost anybody else in, in kind of these kinds of jobs in Nigeria, which is massive. And these are just the workers. For the investors, their investment recovery is two to three weeks. So you can imagine what kind of economy is going on in here. And vertical enforcement absolutely fails in these contexts because when you send in the army and the Nigerian army has, has gone in frequently, it often provokes intense violence, often approaching civil war. And as you know, Niger Delta is a, is a place with a lot of conflict going on. And this is very similar to what happens with poppy and cocaine economies in say Afghanistan or in Latin America, where you have, so this is an extreme case of network corruption, where the whole community is involved in something which is rule violating. So this is what network corruption looks like. Instead of horizontal monitoring going on, you have a cluster of, of um, transactions which are all corrupt and nobody has an incentive. The, the distribution of the spoils might be quite different, but nobody has an incentive of monitoring anybody else. So what do you do? So here, self-interested um, horizontal monitoring isn't feasible. And the anti-corruption solution is exit, but exit understood not as, you know, let's forget this problem and move somewhere else. Exit means exiting from the trap. So exiting means you have to find some alternative way of the community having a living which kind of matches what is happening in this activity. And that is challenging because as we just saw, the incomes from this activity are really high. So the challenge is then to invest in safe and formal livelihoods which generate pretty high income in the context of, of the country and alternative forms of power. So solar power is one way of weaning these societies off, these sub-societies from the dependence on this illegal diesel, and which is, by the way, already happening. So a lot of solar power is being, you know, development partners and others and community groups are trying to bring in solar power. That is the kind of thing that our research says is the way forward. Healthcare for oil spills and, and the victims of pollution. But the main insight is that what you shouldn't do is apply a standard enforcement approach here, because that is not only not going to work, is not only going to possibly provoke civil war type responses, but will actually make things worse for the poorest people that you're trying to help. Let me end with um, an example of network corruption where there might actually be a partial voice solution as well in that network corruption. So it's not an exit story, but it's a 
trying to embed a voice solution in, into a, a clustered network corruption. And this is a story of doctor absenteeism in Bangladesh. And we have three studies on absenteeism of healthcare workers, doctors, and others in Bangladesh, Nigeria, and Tanzania. And I'm reporting the Bangladesh one because it's already been published. The Nigeria one is finished and will be publishing soon. And the Tanzania one is also close to finishing. They all are variants on the same theme, but they're slightly different. And it's, and it's very interesting. So the problem here is that if you look at Bangladesh, around 40% of doctors in rural health clinics are absent at any moment in time. I mean, I'm talking, this is pre-pandemic and during the pandemic, doctors in Bangladesh, like everywhere else, did a heroic job. So this is not about the pandemic period, but the normal situation in, in a place like Bangladesh. 40% of doctors are not at their place of work. Now in the health policy domain, there is a very strong resistance to describing anything as corruption if health workers are involved. There's a kind of sensitivity to this, but we don't have that sensitivity. If you're a public servant and you're getting a salary and you're not at your job and nothing can persuade you to go there, for us, this is corruption. Um, if you don't want to call it corruption, it's fine. It's certainly a policy failure, but we call it corruption. Now, 40% of doctors are absent is massive. And actually, 70% of doctors are habitual absentees, even though at any point in time, they're not all absent, 70% are engaged in absentees. Interestingly, vertical enforcement has been tried to death. The government has set up fingerprint monitors in every rural health clinic. So doctors have to come in and, and, and check in with their thumb. And that information is immediately put online. So you can go to an online website in Bangladesh and you will know that in this health clinic, in this rural area, 40 or 50% of doctors are absent. Now, this is a really good example of information not leading to enforcement. The information is there, it's public. The prime minister of Bangladesh, who's a very strong woman and quite you know, fearsome, um, she, people are usually very scared of her. She has gone on television exhorting doctors, this is pre-pandemic, -pre to go back to work and, and stay in there. Nothing works. So here's a, it's a really good example of information not leading to enforcement because doctors as a group are really powerful. So we attack this in a slightly different way, trying to find out why were doctors absent at this high level? And we used a technique called a discrete choice experiment because if you simply go and ask doctors why are you absent and what might make you go there, you can be sure that they will give you um, answers which are not entirely trustworthy. Right? So this technique, which is used in, in context like this, is a way of asking the question, not directly, but by giving your um, target, your, your doctor, choices between complex combinations of scenarios. And then in terms of their preferences, you build up a picture of their preferences in a, through a statistical technique. I'm not going to go through this in any more detail, but it's, if you think, you can think of it as a very sophisticated survey, which is trying to get to the truth in the best way you can, given that people have a very strong incentive of not telling you the truth in a context like this. So when we did that experiment, what did we find? Well, obviously, um, we found a very heterogeneous group of doctors. Doctors were quite different in terms of their preferences. And there were three big groups, and they're called latent groups in, in 
this literature. The first group are the ones who are attending anyway. That's around 30% who are never absent. They're the permanent attendees. And for them, the conditions of work, the salary and everything was fine and they were committed to serving in their communities. So they were turning up. So this is not problematic. The really interesting part of the story is a second group in the middle. And the second group in the middle are a group who would attend with some feasible improvements in amenities and security. And we found particularly for female doctors, the boondocks of Bangladeshi rural areas can be quite scary. Security conditions are pretty bad. And for doctors with young families, again, you, you often have very poor schools and very poor amenities. So if you could, and, and this is feasible because it's, you know, it's not that you have to build schools and, and uh, of high quality everywhere, or you have to provide. It's basically making sure that female doctors aren't asked to go in areas where the security is very poor, or doctors with young families don't have to go to areas where there are no schools. It's about matching that and providing some small incentive payments and indeed improving security and um, uh, amenities, which should happen anyway. But a feasible package would actually make a massive number of doctors who were not attending start attending. And you would get from maybe 30% of doctors attending to something like 70% attending. That would still leave a rump of orange doctors who would not attend with any feasible policy. And these are usually, I mean, we suspect they are political appointees and so on who have got in and, and shouldn't be there anyway. Now, you, you, the feasible policy won't get rid of them. So, at the very least, the policy implication is that the feasible policy would massively increase your attendance. But there is another possibility, and this is something that we are hypothesizing because the evidence doesn't exist yet for us to say that this is evidence-based. But we think that if you could get attendance from 30% to 70%, something else would happen, which is that now the attending doctors would start horizontally monitoring the ones who are not attending. Because you suddenly begin to say, you're a free rider, I'm attending, you're not attending, you're increasing my workload and making my life difficult. And that will actually make some of those orange doctors also start attending. In other words, by changing the ratio of, of compliers and non-compliers, you actually create the conditions for horizontal monitoring. If 70% are violating, no one is going to do any horizontal monitoring. If 70% are not violating, then the orange people have a hard time because they will be immediately picked up as free riders. And then all of the things that happen in everyday life in, in the universities and so on, when I see someone free riding or someone sees me free riding, my colleagues are the first port of call saying, you should, I think you should be attending that seminar or that class and so on. So this is, gonna, is not gonna happen if you have massive um, um, violations going on. So this is a case where we combine a voice answer with trying to break down a cluster network problem. Okay, so I've given you examples of voice, of exit, and, and mixed, and there are dozens of other studies on our website for you to look at. Let me end now with some conclusions. This is the last slide. The conclusions are the following. The first is that if you're trying to attack all kinds of corruption using the standard kind of recipe 
of transparency and accountability, then the answer is not going to be very promising. We already know that it's being tried to death and it's not working too well. What our research shows is that horizontal monitoring has a large impact on anti-corruption and development outcomes and is already having that impact if we were looking for it. So when we go looking for it, we find it. It's not sticking out and people don't see it because they're not looking for it. And what we are saying is that not only is it already checking corruption in critical areas, in many cases, that checking might be enhanced with feasible policies. And I've given you lots of examples of what those feasible policies might be. They all have to be identified with research. And this is the tough part of it. It's not glaringly obvious what the answer is. And it's not necessarily that all of our answers will work. Some may work and some may not work, but we have a high level of confidence that many of them will work. The next observation, and this is again, a very important conclusion. We, the, this research suggests that governance and anti-corruption should not be add-on pillars to policy. So you don't have a skills training program and then you add on a corruption and uh, anti-corruption and governance pillar, which says we now need to monitor what's going on and cancel contracts when there's violation. That is not working. It, I mean, it's patently not working because of this collusion between different players, because nobody has an interest in, in cratering the policy and stopping all the money flowing. So everybody is going to lie about that, you know, what is going on and ignore what they can see is, is not working. So anti-corruption actually has to be part of policy design, not a separate pillar. You have to design your skills training program. You have to design your contracting for power. You have to design your embankment policies so that support for horizontal enforcement is built into the policy design. Anti-corruption has to be embedded in the policy design. This is not good news for development um, practitioners because they all want to think in terms of these compartmentalize things. Let's call in the governance expert and they will add a pillar to our existing program on embankments. That's not what we are saying. And we're actually saying that doesn't work. So anti-corruption should be just as much about designing policies to enhance this horizontal enforcement because in developing countries, you cannot take that for granted. In more advanced countries, you can take that horizontal um, checking for granted, and you can just focus on transparency and accountability. In developing countries, and this is what I was talking about in, in the earlier part of my talk about rule of law and rule by law, you cannot make that assumption. That assumption is a dangerous assumption to make. That horizontal checking is by and large generally missing, and we have to enhance it to get the effect where the vertical enforcement starts actually working. So really a practical test is to ask, is the anti-corruption policy package, that combination of horizontal um, enhancement of, of uh, checking and the vertical enforcement. We are not against vertical enforcement, by the way. We just don't think it's going to work on its own. So, that, so the question to ask is that policy package, is it likely to be supported by sufficiently powerful insiders? And remember that the powerful insider might not be very powerful from our perspective. They just have to be powerful enough to check the violators. And are the sufficiently powerful insiders going to do that in their own interest to constrain corruption by their peers? This is a question nobody asks. What is the demand for this policy 
from the people who we are trying to help? And that question can't be asked and answered by simply asking the question. That question has to be answered in terms of evidence. Because if you ask people, everybody will say, yes, we are completely against corruption and we will fight it to death. But in fact, they don't. So it's not about asking them a, a, a kind of loaded question like that, but looking at what they're doing. And that tells you, do they really have an interest in checking their, their peers? And what do we have to do to enhance that activity? Only if the answer to this question is yes, is a voice-based anti-corruption likely to be effective if you can identify all the different bits that needs to be done. Otherwise, what we have is a network corruption problem, and we have to think of exit strategies of the type that we have, I have given you some uh, hint of, and we have a lot of them. The Nigerian power sector paper, which is a really good paper, is also an exit strategy paper where we say that you can't um, fight this problem collectively. You have to find some um, parallel solutions of grid of off-grid based power to solve that problem. So have a look at that paper as another example of an exit strategy. Together, a mix of voice and exit strategies can help develop those productive forces, which in turn build support for anti-corruption in the future. So that's our new approach. Um, you can hear a very, very long podcast, which I've recorded on that link, which gives you more details about this. And there's a lot of papers on, on our working papers on the SOAS website. So there's a link to that, which you can go to. You can also look at some of the other stuff I've done, which is I don't just work on anti-corruption as Duncan said, there are other things I've published and there's a link to my SOAS webpage. So those are three things you can click on once you have some time. So thank you. Brilliant. Mushak, thank you, not least for demonstrating what thinking about power and politics can add to some of the biggest dilemmas in the aid and development business. I thought that was absolutely superb. Also, just to say that next week is reading week, so we don't have a lecture next week, but we come back with a bang the week after with Jayati Ghosh, the Indian economist, and with Kevin Watkins as discussant on intellectual property rights uh, and big pharma around the issue of COVID vaccines. So you couldn't get much more um, sort of uh, on point uh, than that. So that's the week after next. Okay, over to you, Uche, for your comments. Okay, um, thank you, uh, Mustache, and uh, thank you, Duncan, for uh, that uh, generous introduction. I, I, I've listened attentively to uh, your proposition, and uh, they're quite exciting um, to um, to um, underscore. And I and I, I applaud. Um, your findings and um, coming from Nigeria, the issues you raised are germane, and um, we all agree that um, the anti-corruption as is being pursued through accountability and transparency can be more efficient, can be more effective. Um, there has been a whole lot of conversations around context, and you dealt uh, with this quite robustly. But the thing is that uh, you, your new approach appear very interesting, um, especially uh, because of uh, what you emphasize. Uh, and a couple of points jumped at me. The first is uh, the importance of uh, horizontal monitoring. Um, for enforcement. And um, 
what came to my mind is uh, the what came to my mind is the whistle uh, blowing policy um, in Nigeria that sort of tends to uh, mobilize the people and take anti-corruption um, back to the people. And I was thinking whether it's something uh, you have considered uh, in terms of uh, mobilizing horizontal money. I agree with you with uh, the, the issues you spoke to about um, enforcement, the difficulty of enforcement and the selective nature um, and of enforcement. I, I, I also agree uh, with um, the findings of your research about uh, how the configurations of power, interests, and capabilities affect uh, enforcement. Indeed, uh, I see a situation, especially in the Nigerian case, where those who are, are expected to be the enforcers of anti-corruption are also in some ways either directly or indirectly linked to the violators. So the, the central nature of politics um, and the peculiarities of politics um, in the success of uh, anti-corruption endeavors cannot be emphasized. And I see that come through in many of the things you said. Um, I am excited by your reference to the rule of law and uh, rule by law. And um, it is really what is evident in the Nigerian situation where powerful people uh, uh, continue to escape sanctions. Um, and organizations uh, who uh, don't have uh, these capabilities are really, really, um, very many of them uh, are in the country, especially because of the informal sector, which you spoke about. But I wanted to uh, draw your attention, um, you know, to something that I'm sure you are familiar with as someone looking at the Nigerian situation, and that is the 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 issue of the answers, the way the you know organizations supposedly at the bottom, organizations supposedly powerless. Um, would uh, organize themselves and uh, begin to push very radical, very spontaneous, um, you know, issues against corruption. We must understand that uh, the trigger of the NSAS protests uh, was basically corruption and police brutality. And uh, it is something uh, that deserves a little more attention. Uh, if you ask me in looking at uh, horizontal mon monitoring in the Nigerian situation um, um, and uh, the fact that there are organizations who, by your definition, are incapable, but then uh, that they can also be mobilized for something positive in, uh, in, the, in the fight against corruption. Um, I have the uh, Nigerian case study uh, where, where you spoke about the Niger Delta region and uh, the suggestions uh, you made. And I thought I should uh, spend some time on it, that um, while the explanation about the artisanal mining and uh, the solutions and the suggestions you gave are quite useful, but I think it would be important to say that uh, 
they are slightly simplistic uh, because the, uh, for instance, the oil theft situation in the Niger Delta region, the records have it that uh, is about 400,000, three to 400,000 barrels per day. And uh, only a fraction of uh, that stolen oil goes into the uh, artisanal mining and the economy you talk about. Those, 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 the fact that there is an economy, there is an informal economy is, 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 is true. But then it is also important that it is just a fraction of the hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil that is lost in that region um, um, every day. And indeed, it is a cover-up. It is a, you know, in my view, a more sophisticated um, example um, that needs to be looked into. And there are collusion, actually. There's an issue of collusion, and you make reference to some of these here and there. There's an issue of collusion. The lack of vertical enforcement that you referred to is actually deliberate, is more of an issue of collusion than, I mean, if you go to um, the reasons, if you drill deep and see the reasons why the Niger Delta, the Nigerian Army, for instance, the Nigerian Navy and all the monitoring agencies seem to be helpless with the situation in the region. Somewhere along the line, you will see that, um, you know, there's some collusion. And again, there are some international uh, actors uh, because 400,000 barrels of oil per day cannot just be stolen by the informal artisanal miners. It's a sophisticated process, um, you know, badges coming, and there are a lot of international collaborators uh, in the process. Um, I, I would like to um, also um, refer to, um, you know, sort of agree with some of the issues you raised, um, especially about uh, anti-corruption not sustainable as a standalone issue, um, that it is important to build in anti-corruption rather than uh, allowing it to stand alone. I agree with that. And I think that uh, that will be a long-term approach um, because um, mm -hmm. as you know, it's a bit complicated here because it is like uh, what uh, one of the, one scholar talked about, um, you know, comparing corruption in Nigeria uh, with uh, the traffic in a major city, which is Lagos, where while you are caught in a traffic, you are complaining about the traffic, and if you have an opportunity to drive across the traffic and you, you use it, so a situation where you know where corruption is condemned by very many people um, when an opportunity, and I also heard you mention that there is a high tolerance uh, capacity, which is as a result of trying to adapt uh, when an opportunity comes uh, to an average Nigerian to take up an issue um, uh, that is corrupt. The person will likely be highly tolerant to it rather than go against it. So I think that uh, the whole idea of building in anti-corruption uh, and policy will be useful, but uh, in the long term. I, I want to, again, speak to uh, the enhancing horizontal enforcement. And uh, I think that uh, the whistle uh, blower protection policy in Nigeria is quite a useful one. And uh, at the end of the day, the kind of trust that anti-corruption um, in many developing countries, um, especially in Nigeria, you know, you know that it's not trusted. Anti-corruption actors are not trusted. Um, especially because of um, 
the fact that the same set of people who are supposed to enforce anti-corruption are linked to these people who are violating uh, and escaping some of these sanctions. So the ordinary people uh, do not trust anti-corruption efforts. I think that the challenge here is how to get the ordinary people to trust even anti-corruption policies, uh, you know, as it were. So I think that uh, your recommendation that building in anti-corruption uh, policies, um, you know, designing anti-corruption as, in, you know, in, integral part of policies rather than uh, treating them as a standalone would be a useful way to pursue it. Um, and I think that um, the voice-based corruption uh, that you spoke extensively about, in my view, can actually be used to break the network corruption. Um, rather than to say we yield to an exit strategy, and I listened to those exit strategy examples, I think that leveraging on technology, what we have learned um, from NSAS that I referred to is that there's a lot that is possible leveraging on technology. And there's a whole lot that is possible allowing the people especially the young people who, uh, you know, who have uh, horizontal networks and who have uh, technology capabilities. Um, they are on the social media, they are on the Twitter, they are on Facebook, and there's a whole, you know, lot of powers that really they, they can exert. Some of these powers are relatively unknown, even by the young actors themselves, but the whole, um, and SARS situation really brought to reality, you know, some of these powers that do exist. And I think that uh, it will be important to sort of uh, spend some time uh, trying to understand how to leverage on these existing capabilities that are relatively unknown, especially leveraging on technology to see if there can be ways of uh, mobilizing stronger horizontal monitoring in peculiar countries like Nigeria. So generally speaking, I think that um, I agree uh, with the issues, uh, most of the issues you have raised, and uh, I'll be happy to um, continue this conversation and um, not only to understand uh, further uh, the research you are doing with the Nigerian situation, also to understand the overlaps with uh, countries like Bangladesh and uh, what can be learned. Because what we have learned in um, anti-corruption is that there is no one size fits all. And there is um, what I call context, contours and consequences in, in fighting corruption in each country. And I think that what you have done is uh, a very elaborate effort to sort of look at different contexts and how they do overlap. And I've been interested in um, contributing to this conversation going forward. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. That's excellent. Um, I'm really enjoying the fact that, I mean, it's childish, I know, but the fact that we're having a debate between Bangladesh and Nigeria via the LSE is exactly what this, this lecture series is supposed to be like. And it's great when it works as well as this with such fantastic insights. Um, uh, I, I think just to wrap up here, I mean, I think we've witnessed a superb um, webinar, actually, and one which I think demonstrates the value of scholarship in terms of coming up with new ideas for solving long-lived problems, you know, really knotty problems. Um, and uh, that combination of sort of 
a systems approach, uh, avoiding simplistic single solution answers to things, but not giving up on trying to trying to make change happen and trying to improve outcomes for poor people is a fantastic, I think, lesson to us all. So I want to say a big thank you to Uche uh, Igwe and to Mushtaq Khan. Khan, I hope you'll come back. I, I think every year, I know we keep asking you back, but that's because you're so good. Uh, every year, the students need to hear this stuff. Um, as I said at the beginning, we've got a week off, and then we've got Jayati Gosh talking about COVID vaccines and intellectual properties. But in the meantime, thanks to the speakers and uh, good night. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.